This podcast was produced by members of the Pinsker Centre Policy Fellowship. The Pinsker Centre is a think tank which focuses on global foreign policy whilst promoting freedom of speech and fighting intolerance. If you'd be interested in learning more about our work, follow the Pinsker Centre on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Applications for the Policy Fellowship Programme will open in the spring. Hi everyone and welcome to the People Talk Politics podcast. I'm Ola Hogan and I'm a Policy Fellow here at the Pinsker Centre and a third year history student at the University of Cambridge. I'm joined today with two other Pinsker Fellows, Lucas and Baran, who I will allow to introduce themselves. Hi Ola, thank you for, for doing this. I am Lucas and I am a, a master's student at the London School of Economics doing International Political Economy. Hello, this is Baran Aguilar from King's College, War Studies Department, second year student. So on today's episode, we'll be discussing what has become a rather contentious and uncertain issue, namely the future of and the prospect of peace in the Middle East and North Africa region. We're going to be discussing what the Israel-Hamas conflict looks like and how it is affecting relations with the broader Middle East. This is a question that isn't on solid footing and is changing every day as events unfold, particularly in the Gaza Strip. So before we begin, I think we're going to go through a little bit of a historical background. So Israel and the Gulf Arab states have had a long and tenuous history of fractured relationships, experiencing points of tension and moments of seeming reconciliation over the past number of decades. The Abraham Accords, signed in 2020, have been heralded as a huge step forward in resolving tensions. However, inflaming tensions between Israel and Palestine, most notably the conflict started by Hamas on the 7th of October, suggested that change is afoot in the Middle East, to say the least, and has inevitably called into question the effectiveness of these accords. I think it's fair to say that there has been a tectonic shift in the region over the past month. It's an extremely fragile and tenuous situation, making speculation about what might occur in the short to medium term particularly difficult, but we're going to attempt it nonetheless here today. The war that has erupted followed a prolonged period of regional-led de-escalation and reconciliation efforts. Since 2019, countries including Israel have become increasingly willing to find pragmatic, workable compromises based on shared interests. I'm also just going to run through a brief historical background to the fluctuations in relations in the MENA region. The Oslo Accords of 1993 and 1995 were seen to be an acceptance of normalization between Israel and the Gulf Arab states, aimed at achieving peace between Israel and Palestine, and requiring Israel to recognize Palestinians' rights to self-determination. Though unsuccessful, they've helped forge links between Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman with Israel, and this ultimately began to de-escalate tensions between Arab and Israeli states. The 2002 Arab Peace Initiative although less successful than the Oslo Accords, suggested that change was nonetheless afoot. And finally, the Abraham Accords, which I've already mentioned, they were a series of agreements aimed at normalizing diplomatic and economic relations between Israel and several Arab countries. The first accord was signed in August 2020 between Israel and the UAE, and it was the first time an Arab country officially recognized Israel since the beginning of the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty in 1994. I'm now going to hand over to Baran, who's going to talk about what the ongoing conflict now means for Saudi Arabia. For Saudi Arabia, there has been considerably a problematic situation. With the current conflict ongoing, it was considerably quite bad for the relation between Saudi Arabia 
and Israel with Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who has been seen as a reformist uh, new ruler who is actively being pushing for normalization process with Israel, has been limited significantly with the growing unpopularity with uh, their public. And this has been considerably limiting. This similar situation, which was seen in 2018, when Prince Mohammed bin Salman was uh, pushing for a Trump version of normalization process between Palestine and Israel. And he was significantly criticized about his perspective on Palestine needs to solve its issues under the Trump administration's agreement plan for Palestine. A similar thing has been happening, but regardless of it, the Arab state still has been vetoing as being led by Saudi Arabia on this process to stop all of the diplomatic relations with Israel because of this. And they haven't been going for any of the sanctioned possibilities regardless of the ongoing conflict. Lucas, can you tell us a little bit about what this means for the UAE and Bahrain? So the situation for Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates is very similar to the one um, Bahrain described about Saudi Arabia. They have populations which are very pro-Palestinian and have animosity towards Israel. But at the same time, the governments have signed, especially after the Abraham Accords, political and free trade agreements with Israel. For example, economically, Bahrain has signed 12 economic agreements with Israel in sectors like aviation, banking, technology and water sectors. For instance, the National Bank of Bahrain has signed a cooperation agreement with Israel's Bank Lumi and Bank Hapolain. Moreover, the trade between Israel and the United Arab Emirates since they signed a free trade agreement is now, in 2021 at least, was 1.15 billion US dollars. This was an increase of 511% since 2020. So obviously, first of all, there is an economic interest in, in these countries. But then there's also security interest in these countries. These Bahrain and the UAE have acknowledged the unstable situation of the region and they identify Iran as their main threat. So in this sense, it's a difficult situation for Bahrain and the UAE to juggle because they have populations that are against Israel, but they know that their main geopolitical rival is Iran. In this sense, then, it's a difficult situation for both countries for two reasons. First of all, Israel is the most powerful military in the region by far. So if these countries want to make sure that Iran doesn't destabilize the region, they have to ensure that they have at least decent relations with Israel. On the other hand, these countries still rely on the US security umbrella. For example, the US has at least 9,000 troops stationed in Bahrain, and they understand that the US security umbrella is its main guarantor of their security. And what is a way to ensure the US umbrella? Well, it's to have good relations with Israel. Nevertheless, we can see a very different approach between Bahrain and, and the UAE. For example, Bahrain in early November recalled its ambassador to Israel and suspended economic and trade relations. In this sense, the suspension of economic and trade relations are not that big of a surprise because their economic relations between Israel and Bahrain are not as developed as between Israel and the UAE. For example, in 2021, the bilateral trade between these two countries was only 6.5 million US dollars. So obviously, that's not as big of an impact. Moreover, the Israeli ambassador was made to leave Bahrain uh, after Israel started retaliating against Hamas. But nevertheless, Israel still believes that 
the relations are stable and that the actions by the Bahrain parliament are more aimed at reassuring the public than reversing the Abraham Accords. At the end of the day, we all know that dictatorships still need popular support to survive. So Israel, from their perspective, is kind of juggling the situation of having a hard stance against Israel to reassure its population. On the other hand, the UAE has had a very different approach. The chairman of the Defense Interim Foreign Affairs Committee called the Abraham Accords the future of the UAE in mid-October, so obviously after the Hamas terrorist attack in early October. Moreover, air trouble between both countries is still operational, and despite the UAE calling for an end of Israel's military campaign, there hasn't been any further words than that. The priority for them is to secure ceasefire and open humanitarian corridors, but the UAE hasn't gone further than words, and even their words haven't been as powerful as those of Bahrain. So all in all, we can see that it, it's a difficult situation for these countries. They have followed different approaches. At the end of the day, their priority is the same. They still want to pursue their economic ties with Israel, especially the UAE, because bilateral trade since 2020 has exceeded $6 billion. So obviously for the UAE, Israel is an important training partner, especially with its um, with Israel and the Gulf countries in general trying to diversify the economies. Israel can kind of bring a lot of tech expertise, for example, which is uh, obviously the tech sector is an important leading sector in Israel. So these countries are kind of this dilemma trying to juggle both positions and, and we can see how it's been difficult for them. However, I do believe that as time goes by, these countries will acknowledge that Israel is still needed for their security and we won't see much more apart from words and repeated calls for ceasefire. But that's not something too different to what some European countries or some countries in the global south are doing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wanted to touch on some points you made in relation to the role of the US, because it's obviously clearly a conflict in which rhetoric is playing a much larger role than actions are playing. And I wondered what, like, if either of you had any thoughts about what the role of the US could be in de-escalating tensions, particularly because the Abraham Accords were so symbolically signed, you know, in front of the White House. So if either of you wanted to jump in. Uh, I believe that there is a significant prestige race happening currently in the East. As last year, we saw that China was trying to broker a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia to make the normalization process between the two countries regarding making a ceasefire in Yemen in the proxy war that has been happening in the region. Uh, that was also significantly symbolic in a way of China trying to show the world that themselves can be the main moderator, main negotiation partner in historically, for the recent history, been a significant region for American influence and American military. And in that way, I assume that uh, U.S. will probably want to make sure that this normalization process between Israel and Saudi Arabia and other Arab states are happening and happening soon so that they can still say that they are the main ones for for the hegemon of the region. And it's in a way, if they can't manage it, it will be a significant loss of prestige for the country. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think that the US is measuring every single step it takes very precisely. Obviously, the US, when the October 7th attack occurred, was very quick to... Um, issue their condemnation to, to Hamas's attack and has shown overwhelming support to Israel. However, there, there are reports, and I think, I think they're credible, 
that say that the US, for example, was uh, instrumental in having Israel delay its ground invasion into Gaza, or the US has also sort of pushed towards not a ceasefire, but what they call humanitarian pauses. So obviously, I think, Baran, you're right, that the US acknowledges the importance of prestige and that the US knows that whilst China isn't, for now, hasn't really had a role, the US still wants to assert itself as not only the main military power, but also the main superpower in every sense of the way, right? And I think influence plays a big role in that. But also, I would argue that the US has taken these pacifying steps or or tried to delay Israel's ground invasion or tried to impose humanitarian pauses, what they call, for Arab countries to, or for Gulf countries in this case, to not oppose or not criticize Israel as much as they would do if the US had not mediated. So I think that the US role is very important in the sense that, first of all, as I mentioned before, its security umbrella in the region is vital. And obviously, its main interest, the US and the US allies in the region, is to deter Iran. We saw, for example, with the US bringing USS Eisenhower, I believe, and having USS Ford stay in the region. So that was important as a signal. But the US also wants to keep its prestige so the region can sort of advance from the, from this attack and so that the US allies, Israel and the Arab states can sort of look past their differences and advance in their peace um, negotiations and in, and in, for example, an advancement of the Abraham Accords. And lastly, I do want to also add, in a historical similarity, it also looks similar to the divided Germany between the Western and the Soviet. Two countries, Iran and Israel, do represent different perspectives and different ways that these countries in the Middle East can go, different directions uh, they can take. And I think it's also in that sense a really symbolic way of who should be the one leading the Middle East. Should Iran be the one who will be having more di- better diplomacy with the neighboring countries and having a significant influence, which will be, in a way, representing that the Chinese way, the undemocratic way, is the one that the other Middle Eastern countries will be following. While, on the other hand, having closer relations with Israel is, in some ways, are representing the rise of and the success of the democracies in the Middle East and the Western way of handling governments. That if we let Israel fail on that regards, I believe that in that sense, we will be seeing the other Middle Eastern countries looking to the Chinese way and seeing that it might be a better option because of their close ties with Iran if they succeed. And I was also wondering if you guys had any thoughts on what Israel can do moving forwards and what resolution might look like in the short term. I think in some senses, the US way of diplomacy currently has been quite better compared to Israel because Israel's diplomacy is under a big stress of their domestic politics, domestic pressure to punish Hamas. And this has been leading Israel in potentially taking steps which are not the most ideal diplomatic steps for making better relations with the Arab states. So in that sense, I believe, regardless if I'm wrong or right, that they need to try to collaborate with other ally members to make their diplomacy as other allies will have the advantage of being able to make diplomacy without significant pressure from the domestic politics 
which might be helpful for Israel to choose more moderate diplomatic pathways. But even if we're talking about what can Israel do, I think, and and this, I, I believe it's a pretty kind of widespread opinion, is that Netanyahu's future is, it's difficult to see where, how Netanyahu stays in the job long term. He is a very unpopular figure right now in Israel. And obviously, in Arab states, I would assume that he is seen as the person who started bombing Gaza. So in that perspective, I think the, one of the first steps that Israel would need to take to start appeasing Gulf states is to potentially have a different prime minister. Then there's also a question of what to do in Gaza, because it's a difficult situation of Gulf countries condemning Israel for military operations, and at the same time, Israeli people wanting to finish Hamas after the, the heinous October 7th attack. So it's a, it's a difficult situation there. I think what we possibly should also look at is what happens next. Because obviously Israel is a very big and, and powerful military, so obviously they will end up accomplishing their objectives in Gaza. The question is, once Hamas is eradicated, what happens next? Because it's difficult, at least from my perspective, to see a sustainable solution in which Israel is physically in Gaza. Today, I think Biden said that Israel occupying Gaza would be a bad idea. And I'm sure that comes from conversations he has had or the US has had with Gulf countries. And I don't think that Gulf countries would see an Israeli military presence in Gaza long term as sustainable. On the other hand, obviously Gaza will be a very, very contentious space. And it's also difficult to see many Arab countries wanting to step up and to pacify Gaza, to reconstruct Gaza. Something like that needs to come from the United States, I would argue. And also, in my opinion, Israel should acknowledge that if it really does want to peacify Gaza and the region, it needs to acknowledge that its presence in Gaza will not help. And I think there the United States must have some sort of role. Maybe the United States probably shouldn't have boots on the ground because obviously it also has countries in the region have reputational concerns about the United States, obviously with Iraq, with Afghanistan, and with, with its military campaigns there. So it's going to need to be, in my opinion, a internationally led solution in which possibly the UN takes takes charge of the region, but in which Arab countries should take a step. And in my opinion, Israel should be comfortable with that. And first of all, that would ensure that people in Gulf countries accept that solution, I would argue. And second of all, that would allow Israel to not bear with the reputational damage of having boots in the ground in Gaza for long term. So I think that would possibly be the most sustainable solution. Is that something Israel will follow? And is that something that Gulf countries want? I'm not that sure. In my opinion, that probably is the most sustainable long term solution. I totally agree with quite a lot of things you say, Lucas. I do think that also Israel needs to make sure that Arab countries should be effectively engaging in the rebuilding process of Gaza after the end of war because at the end of the day, if you don't rebuild Gaza, the misery of the after war economic situation will likely to lead to possible bigger devastations and other organizations just appearing in the void of power and the anger. If they can manage to increase the living standards of the people who is living in Gaza right now, 
you might be able to shift the the public opinion and public came from taking revenge in the situation from Israel to actually just continue on rebuilding the country to become a better and a developed state at the end of the day. And I think for this funding-wise, in the least of it, you will be significantly needing the Arab states. In addition to that, engaging with Arab countries on the rebuilding process will be also significant as anything that goes wrong, they will know that the blame will be on their shoulders as well, which will make them take bigger responsibility on making sure that no other terrorist organization will be appearing in the region and they will be politically putting uh, their pressure on the situation to make sure that it is certain that anything like Hamas won't be rebuilt. Yeah, and on that note, I think that the relations between Israel and, and the Gulf states are important, as you say. But we also, I, I believe, we, we should look at the more humane point of view. And I don't think it's a sustainable solution to for Palestinian refugees or people in Gaza to to leave Gaza and to never come back. That's, first of all, because no Gulf country wants to, or, or even MENA country, wants to accept them in the long term. But also, it would just not be a good image, in my opinion, for Israel to simply deal with Hamas and then not rebuild Gaza and not ensure that people are able to return to their homes, first of all. And second of all, I think it's also worth taking a, a look at the um, or reconsidering in my opinion from the, from the Israeli point of view in order to first of all pacify the region and also improve relations with its neighbors is ensuring that it doesn't cause even more stability in the west bank we've seen recently some concerning activities in the west bank and it's something that i don't think helps to ensure stability in the region and it it's simply not a good a good look in my opinion for Israel. So again, if we want to finish the situation by we I mean the international community even go go past the situation to a sustainable peace and to a long term stability, we need to understand that there needs to be some sort of long term constraint and long term action that will pacify the region. In my opinion, that means ensuring that Hamas is eliminated, but also ensuring that Palestinian civilians are able to live in peace and to be able to prosper both in the West Bank and in Gaza, because there will be no, my opinion, sustainable solution if the hatred and the animosity against Israel remains within the Palestinian people, but also within the region. So I think that's something also that, that the United States is trying to do, is trying to kind of constrain Israel in some way. And I think that's the way forward to to ensure a sustainable solution. Lucas, I just wanted to circle back to something you mentioned before. So you spoke about how Netanyahu's future is limited and how he's become like particularly unpopular. Is there anyone else who jumps out at you that you think could be an adequate replacement or particular characteristics within a leader that you think could help resolve this tension? Well, I think obviously the unity government shows that there is some willingness to for now, forget the unpopularity of Netanyahu. But I believe that, for example, Benny Gantz is a is a unifying sort of figure that will probably pacify or at least appease Arab countries and nations. And at the end of the day, it's someone, I believe, because Netanyahu is a very skilled politician. He's been able to win a lot of elections. He's been able to stay in power. A lot of times he's been able to have really good results. But 
at the end of the day, Israel needs a leader that, first of all, will be favored by Israelis. And right now, Netanyahu is extremely unpopular, but also be a leader that other Gulf countries will see as a partner. And I do believe that Netanyahu's image has been tarnished. And I don't see how Netanyahu remaining in power in Israel will be sustainable in the long term, both internally and also externally. I mean, we only have to see the protests in Israel with the judicial reform. I think it was up to a million or over that people on the street every single day protesting against the judicial reform. So even before these attacks, Netanyahu was already unpopular. These attacks have only made Netanyahu more unpopular. And its response to these attacks in Gaza, I believe, is making Netanyahu unpopular with the neighboring countries, which, as Baran mentioned, are vital for a long-term solution. So I just think he's too much of a toxic personality right now. And Israel probably needs a change of leader if they want to reach a sustainable solution. And I just wanted to draw out another point on potentially the reconstruction of Gaza down the line. Do you think, obviously, given how tense this is, that's something where the UN would need to take on a greater role, um, particularly in providing humanitarian relief? Or do you think, because of the general ineffectiveness they've shown in assisting this conflict, do you think they don't really have that big of a role to play? I'm generally quite cynical on how much the UN can do. However, I do believe that the UN is a useful body for mediation, first of all, and also for communications. And obviously the UN has a generally positive image. And what I think that Gaza will need is reconstruction, obviously, but from a trusted and from a actor that has a good image. And I don't see anyone else other than the United Nations that can do something like that. I'm not entirely sure if, for example, having the UN as a body itself in Gaza will will have too much of an effect because, for example, there are already UN bodies in, in Gaza. It hasn't precluded Hamas from controlling the region. So I do believe it needs to be a UN-led solution, a UN-led reconstruction, but with some sort of state actionness behind that. Be that an Arab state, be that any other state, I don't know. For me, what it wouldn't make sense is someone like Saudi Arabia. It's, it's Saudi Arabia tries to be the, tries to be the leader of the Arab world, tries to be the leader of the Gulf and of the Middle East against Iran. So even from a, we've been talking about prestige, even from a reputational point of view, it would make sense, in my opinion, for Saudi Arabia to kind of take charge of the reconstruction of Gaza. Is Saudi Arabia prepared to do that? I'm not entirely sure. But what I do know is that, first of all, Gaza needs reconstruction. Gaza needs to be able to to prosper in the future. And the United Nations is best positioned to facilitate that. Again, facilitating doesn't mean taking action. But the UN, I do believe, needs to be present in one way or the other in order to sort of legitimize the state or group of states. So I think it's become clear that it's definitely going to have to be a very delicate balancing act between the US, MENA nations and Israel in leading way to de-escalating the Israel-Hamas war and the broader conflict. I think our discussion today has made it absolutely clear that it's going to have to be a group-led effort and it can't just be put on the shoulders of one country or one organisation in particular. I want to thank our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our discussion today and that it's been thought-provoking. 
As a think tank, the Pinterest Centre regularly hosts lectures and seminars featuring some of the most inspiring international policymakers and opinion formers with an active presence across many universities in the UK. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And please share this podcast if you think someone else would benefit from listening to our analysis here today. And make sure to subscribe as we'll be putting out regular podcasts on the topic.